This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 72, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in John's Gospel? Part 9 of 10. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that has its aim of starting conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am your host. If this is your first time to the podcast, I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes if you don't want to miss out on future episodes. Of course, if you are a regular listener, thank you so much for listening, and welcome back. If you're a regular listener, you know that we have been working our way through the Gospel of John to assess what the title Son of God means in regard to Jesus. Is it a title that assumes co-equality with God the Father? Does it indicate that the Son literally pre-existed in heaven? Or is Son of God just one of many members in a supposed tripersonal Godhead? Some of the heaviest concentration of father-son language appears in John chapter 17. So that will be our passage of study for today. Are the words and descriptions of the Son of God in this chapter consistent with the high human Christology that we have been led to believe is taught throughout the Gospel of John? Let's find out on today's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. We'll begin looking at our passage in John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that all you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to men, whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have the joy made full in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 22. Based on John 17, we can organize the meaning of Son of God into four, count them, four discernible summaries. Let's check them out in detail. Our first point today is that the Son of God has been highly empowered with the Father's prerogatives. In the prayer, the Son of God mentions the fact that God has empowered him mightily, especially with the divine prerogative of giving life. I actually only recently noticed this point in the text because the New American Standard Bible, the translation I primarily choose, has wrongly translated John 17, verse 2. The NESB says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. But the phrase, all whom, in the Greek, is not a reference to all persons. It is pan-o, being neuter, rather than masculine. It should be translated as everything that you have given him, referring to the things God has given to the Son of God, of which the text goes on to say eternal life is what has been given to the people. I checked other modern translations, and they almost all make the same mistake of translating the neuter phrase, everything that God has given to Jesus, into all whom which is grammatically incorrect. I think this is significant because the verb to give appears 16 times in this chapter, in John chapter 17, which is a high enough concentration to make this verb thematic. God has given to Jesus and empowered Jesus with God's own prerogatives. Everything that God has given to Jesus implies the prerogatives and the privileges that the Father has empowered unto the Son of God. This theme reappears in John 17 and verse 7, where the Son of God announces that, quote, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. End quote. The Greek construction here is, again, neuter. Jesus goes on in verse 8 and points out that the words that God has given to Jesus to speak are God's own words. The result of God giving these things to Jesus is, as verse 8 concludes, that, quote, they believe that you sent me, end quote. 
there is a connection that God has commissioned Jesus not only as an agent, but as an agent who is entrusted and empowered with God's words and privileges. Yet another reference to God's empowerment of the Son of God is in verse 10, where Jesus plainly says that, quote, all things that are mine are yours, end quote. Again, the phrase in Greek indicates things rather than persons, using the neuter plural. All of the things that Jesus possesses are actually God's. Lastly, Jesus admits that the glory that he possesses was given to him by the Father in John 17, verse 22, which says, quote, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, end quote. The Father's own glory was shared with the Son of God, and now the Son of God shares it with his closest disciples. So we now have the Son of God admitting three prerogatives with which he was empowered by God. Number one, eternal life. Number two, the Father's words. And number three, the Father's own glory. Jesus was not able to raise the dead, speak God's words, and share in the Father's glory because he himself was Yahweh, the God of Israel, but precisely because Jesus was empowered to do so as the Son of God, namely the highly empowered human king. Our second point today is that the Son of God is the Father's representative agent. As we have already noted, the Son of God's empowerment overlaps with the Son as the representative agent of the Father. We should remember that in the Jewish world of the first century, a man sent is an agent fully representing the one who sent him, acting and speaking on behalf of the sender. This, of course, can be clearly observed in the prayer of John chapter 17. For example, John 17.3 speaks of Jesus Christ as the one whom the only true God has sent. This verse serves two important purposes. First, it identifies the one who sent the Son of God as the Father, the only true God. This, of course, distinguishes the Son of God from the category of only true God. Second, it indicates that Jesus is sent as the agent of the only true God, and therefore, the Son of God bears the authority and privileges of the Father. This is how Jesus is repeatedly depicted as distinct from God, while at the same time portrayed as exercising many of God's unique prerogatives. Both of these points are crucially important for the Gospel of John. The next instance of Jesus acting as God's representative appears in John 17, verse 8, where he acknowledges that, quote, The words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, end quote. In light of the disciples accepting the words and teachings that Jesus received from God, the verse continues by remarking that they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. 
Note the connection between Jesus functioning as the agent of the Father, who speaks the Father's authoritative words, and the acceptance that Jesus was truly sent by God. Now, some might point to the preposition in Greek that is used in this verse, para, with the genitive, which means from. Jesus was sent from God, and conclude that this was a sending from a previous location where God is, namely heaven. Is this proof that the Son of God literally preexisted in heaven prior to living a human life on earth? To make such a firm conclusion would be going beyond what the verse is actually stating. Furthermore, John's Gospel has already used the phrase sent from God with the Greek preposition para and the genitive in John chapter 1 and verse 6. But in that passage, the person sent from God was John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not pre-exist his birth in heaven. When the fourth gospel says that John the Baptist was sent from God, it means that John was truly commissioned by God for his purpose in ministry. That is likely what is meant in our current passage, John chapter 17 and verse 8, when it uses the very same language of Jesus being sent from God. So yes, Jesus was sent as a fully endorsed agent of the Father, but being sent from the Father does not prove that the agent existed in heaven alongside the Father when he was sent. This is not how the Gospel of John uses that language. Confirmation of this reading appears in John 17, verse 18, where Jesus states that, quote, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. End quote. There is a connection to the destination into the world with both God sending Jesus and Jesus sending the disciples. Surely, being sent into the world does not mean the agent or agents formerly were not on the earth, as in they formerly were in heaven before being sent into the world. The disciples were not in heaven before Jesus sent them into the world. That much is clear. The phrase, into the world, seems to be an idiomatic phrase to refer to the realm of the unredeemed those who have not yet accepted Jesus and his gospel message. In other words, the phrase, the world, in John's gospel, does not refer to the third rock from the sun. The world refers to those who are not yet redeemed. Previously, Jesus said the disciples were not of this world. In John 17, verse 14, meaning that they are not identified by this fallen creation, having been born again, or born from above. But let's return to the connection between Jesus being sent into the world and the disciples being sent into the world. In John chapter 10, and verse 36, Jesus states that he was sanctified and then sent into the world. I argued previously that the act of sanctification was at Jesus' baptism the launching point of his ministry in the Gospel of John and in the three Synoptic Gospels. It is not surprising that the disciples, too, are sanctified and sent into the world. 
John 17, verse 17, notes that the disciples are sanctified with the gospel message, and the following verse says that they are sent into the world. So, there is a connection between the manner in which Jesus was sanctified and sent, and the disciples, who were also sanctified and sent. Again, there is no indication here that Jesus being sent into the world proves some sort of pre-existence in heaven. Our third point today is the Son of God is obediently dependent upon the Father. It is self-evident that the person praying to God understands himself to be dependent upon the one to whom he is praying. It is natural that obedience and dependence are overlapping themes. The initial request in John 17 and verse 1 has Jesus asking for the Father to glorify him in order that the Son may obediently glorify the Father. The purpose statement stemming from the conjunction, in order that, helpfully lets the readers know that Jesus is dependent upon the Father's glorifying act in addition to Jesus seeking to obediently glorify the Father. A similar line of thinking can be observed in the next verse, John 17, verse 2. Jesus is given authority over all flesh by God. Jesus is thus dependent upon the Father for this authority. That much is clear. The verse goes on to speak of the privileges Jesus received from the Father, and now Jesus is able to impart eternal life upon humanity. John 17 and verse 4 furthermore stresses the obedience of the Son of God to the Father. In this verse, Jesus says, quote, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. End quote. Jesus speaks as the one who has obediently carried out the work God gave him to perform. This is further elaborated in John 17, verse 6, where Jesus says, quote, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, and they are yours, and you gave them to me. End quote. Note the common refrain, the men whom you gave me, you gave them to me. These are a further indication of the Son of God's dependence upon the Father. But intertwined in this verse's declaration of God giving people to Jesus is the emphasis that Jesus has been obedient. Jesus says, I manifested your name to them. Verse 8 is much of the same. Quote, The words which you gave me I have given to them, end quote, showing both obedience and dependence upon God for these words. These verses seem to clearly conclude that the Son of God is subordinate and willingly obedient to the Father. Jesus is dependent upon God for his empowerment, his mission, and his glorification. Jesus prays to God, and makes repeat requests of him. Lastly, Jesus addresses the one to whom he is praying as the only true God. 
There is no sense that the Son of God has a co-equality with God the Father in John chapter 17. Our fourth point today is that the Son of God is the embodiment of the personified Lady Wisdom. I've argued in a few of my podcast episodes that an underappreciated theological emphasis within the Gospel of John is that the human Jesus is spoken of in terms formally used of God's personified wisdom. That is, God's wise interaction and instruction to his creation. While John 1.14 states that Jesus is the Word become flesh, the personified Word overlapped personified wisdom speculation in the first century. And the wisdom parallels of Jesus in the Gospel of John are far more frequent than the parallels with the personified Logos, the personified Word. I think that keeping the theology that Jesus is the embodiment of Lady Wisdom clear in our minds is crucial, and it helpfully offers insight into the confusing verse of John 17, verse 5. In this passage, Jesus requests of the Father, quote, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. End quote. Let's be absolutely clear as to what this passage is saying. Jesus is requesting glorification with the glory, that's the key word, that he possessed with the Father prior to the world. What is this glory? And how can Jesus speak of having a glory before the world was without clearly implying that he literally preexisted his birth? Again, I suggest that understanding Jesus as the human embodiment of Lady Wisdom helps in understanding what is said here. Proverbs chapter 8 heavily personifies wisdom as a woman alongside Yahweh in heaven. In this chapter, Guess what wisdom possesses prior to the creation of the world? Yes, that's right. Glory. Wisdom and glory are with me, says Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 18. Wisdom and glory are with me. Using the Hebrew noun kavod, which is the regular noun referring to glory. The same sort of speculation regarding God's personified wisdom possessing glory in heaven appears in the 2nd century B.C. document of Sirach and the 1st century A.D. document of Wisdom of Solomon. Both of these documents were included in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Listen to what these authors, the author of Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon, have to say. Sirach chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Whoever holds wisdom fast inherits glory. Sirach 4.13. Sirach chapter 6 says, You will wear wisdom like a robe of glory. Chapter 6 verse 31. Wisdom of Solomon chapter 7 says, For she, Lady Wisdom, is a breath of the power of God, and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty, Wisdom 7.25. And in Wisdom chapter 9, we read that Lady Wisdom guards me with her glory. That's Wisdom of Solomon chapter 9, verse 11. 
So as we can see with those five references, there is much discussion about Lady Wisdom and her glory. If Jesus is wisdom become flesh, it naturally follows that he would speak the things that she said. But we must be careful to regard Lady Wisdom as what she was meant to be understood as, namely a personification of God's wise attribute. Lady Wisdom was not, I repeat, Lady Wisdom was not an actual woman alongside God in heaven. That would be a misunderstanding of personification in favor of an actual person. To say that Jesus is the embodiment of a personification of wisdom that was portrayed in poetic sections of Scripture as being next to God in heaven before the world's creation is not attributing personal preexistence to Jesus. On the contrary, it seeks to heighten Jesus' importance as the climactic locus of God's wise interaction and instruction to the world, embodied in the human Son of God. So while many regard John chapter 17 and verse 5 as proof that Jesus actually existed in heaven before the world was, it is more likely that the passage is portraying Jesus as speaking as Lady Wisdom's embodiment, that is, the embodiment of a pre-existing personification. In conclusion, we have observed that John chapter 17 offers the longest prayer in the Bible. Within this petition directed to the Father, whom Jesus calls the only true God, we were able to discern four characteristics of what Son of God means. First, we observe that the Son of God is one who is highly empowered with the Father's privileges and prerogatives. Second, we saw that the Son of God acted as the representative agent of the only true God, speaking on his behalf and exercising the life-giving activity as the one who was truly sent and commissioned. Third, we observe that the Son of God was obediently dependent upon the Father, constantly obeying God while repeatedly admitting his need for God throughout the prayer. And lastly, we noted that the Son of God speaks as Lady Wisdom's embodiment, requesting to receive the glory which formerly belonged to God's personified wise interaction with the world, as depicted in Proverbs, Sirach, and Wisdom of Solomon. Having read John chapter 17 carefully, there seems to be no indication or inference that the Son of God is the second member of some tripersonal God. The Son of God is clearly distinct from the only true God, proving that the Son of God is not the only true God. That should go without saying. There is also no indication that the Son of God is co-equal to the Father. For one does not pray to an equal. All in all, the representation of the Son of God in John chapter 17 fits best within a high human Christology rather than a Trinitarian paradigm.
Please look forward to our next episode where we will wrap up our study on what the Son of God means in the Gospel of John. And if you think this podcast would speak truth to your friends and family, please be sure to share it on social media. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description or the attached document for a PayPal link. Thanks again so much for listening to us. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.